It's one of my favorite movies. In fact, uh, I knew I was going to show a clip from that this week, and I was flipping through channels last night, and uh, Hoosiers was on uh, TV last night, so I stopped and watched it. It's one of those movies that I always stop and watch, at least for a little while. Uh, I, I was thinking about this movie and putting together a, a team and, and just thinking about, you know, what, what does the ultimate team look like? I suppose, at least in basketball, that the, the ultimate team, the the very best team that was ever assembled may have been the 1992 U.S. men's Olympic team. You, you, some of you are old enough to remember that uh, you know the United States uh, used to send all amateur athletes, college students, to play in the Olympics. In 1988, the United States lost to the Soviet Union. Uh, was out of the gold medal round and, and sort of embarrassed the United States. Uh, the International uh, Federation of Basketball decided in 1989 that they would allow professional athletes to play in the Olympics for the first time. And so for the 1992 team, the United States went about putting together a team of professional basketball players. And uh, they assembled a, a group of players that included Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, John Stockton, Carl Malone, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Patrick Ewing, Ewing Chris Mullen, uh, David Robinson, Charles Barkley, Clyde Drexler, and the only college athlete was Christian Leitner. They uh, rolled through the competition, winning by you know uh, over 30 points in every one of their games in the in the Olympics. They won the gold medal easily. Uh, lots of experts say that the most competitive game in the Olympics that year was the inter-squad scrimmage that happened before the Olympics uh, kicked off, when uh, half the the gold medal winning team beat the other half 46 to 40. Uh, they uh, became known as you know, the dream team because they were uh, the ultimate team. Uh, I think uh, that we all have experienced being part of a team. Some of those experiences are, have been good and some of those experiences have been bad. But when we think about uh, our, our lives and putting together a game plan, God very much wants us to experience being a part of his team. He wants us to be a part of the ultimate team. And I, I really believe that his family, the church, is uh, absolutely the ultimate team. And, and I think in the as we begin in the study of 1 Corinthians that we're calling game plan, one of the very first pieces of our game plan has to be uh, to figure out, you know, what does being a part of that ultimate team look like? And I think there are three keys that are taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, the first uh, 17 verses that will help us to, to fit in and be a part of that ultimate team. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them up to uh, the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians. We're going to work our way through the first 17 verses here this morning as we consider these three keys. Uh, perhaps on the way in this morning, you received one of our welcome packets. There's an outline on the back of that bulletin. You can fill in the blanks as we go along and discuss these three keys. There's a page number at the top of that outline that'll take you quickly to 1 Corinthians and one of the Bibles you can find uh, in the chairs around you. If you've downloaded our Wallula Christian Church app. You can also find all of that information on, on the app this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be reading the first 17 verses. 
Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, passage of scripture that highlights for us three keys. It's a fun passage that I'm going to struggle with reading, filled with all kinds of names and, and whatnot that we're not all that familiar with this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is what God's word says. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment, for it has been reported to me by closed people that there is quarreling among you. My brothers, what I mean is that each of you, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in the name in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. All right, an interesting section of scripture here is Paul introduces us to this letter that he writes to the church in Corinth, the church that was located in the city of Corinth. Corinth was, a, was an important city uh, in the empire. It was a trade center. There was lots of business. Uh, tons of folks traveled uh, through Corinth every year. Way more folks traveled through Corinth on business and making uh, and trading and, and uh, working in the marketplace than lived in Corinth, but it became a center of commerce. It became a center of worship for all kinds of different gods in the Roman Empire. It was a hustling and bustling kind of place. It had a, it had a not great reputation in the ancient world. Uh, you know, lots of folks uh, would use that, that phrase that we talked about earlier this morning, that you shouldn't behave like that because people are going to think that you're from Corinth, that you're a Corinthian. And it's in the middle of that city that Paul plants this church and eventually writes this letter to the church in Corinth where he's, he's highlighting these three keys to being a part of God's ultimate team, his family, the church. What does that look like? And, and key number one is to understand who leads the team. Understand who leads the team. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus in our brother 
Sosthenes. So Jesus, uh, Paul begins just by saying who's writing the letter. And so he's got a, 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 somebody with him, and we're not really sure who this guy is or how involved he was in the writing of the letter. But we do know that Paul writes back to the church of Corinth. And Paul begins this letter, like he does many of his letters, by sort of highlighting his, his, why he's able to write this letter, why people should listen to him. He's, he's kind of uh, listing his credentials for the church, and he reminds them of his apostleship. That's an important word. And we've talked a little bit over the last couple of weeks in our last series about that word apostle. It's a, it's a word that can just mean very generically uh, sent out, somebody who is sent to, from one place to another. And so uh, Paul, when he leaves on his first missionary journey, he's described as an apostle, kind of lowercase a, because Paul and Barnabas are being sent out as an apostle. And so several people in the New Testament are described as apostles because they're serving in a capacity that we might call a missionary today, somebody who's sent out from where they are to another place to to share the story of Jesus. In that capacity, uh, every one of us in this room is an apostle, a lowercase a, because we've all been sent, we've all been given the same commission, we've all been sent, whether it's to our workplace, to our families, to our, 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 our friends, we've been sent someplace to show off the love of Jesus. And so in that capacity, every one of us is an apostle. But that's not really the capacity in in which Paul writes this letter. Certainly he served in that role when he planted the church in Corinth, but he's not writing to them under uh, that that as, as, you know, his credential for being able to write this letter and why folks should listen to him. He's making this claim that he is an apostle uh, with a capital A sort of apostle, that he fills this role that's unique to the New Testament. As we walk through uh, the early stages of the, of the church in Acts, uh, about the first six chapters in our last se- series, Building Blocks, we often referred to the apostles. There were uh, sort of four standards for uh, apostleship in the, the New Testament. We read some of those as we studied the book of Acts. We read that you know when they, when they selected Matthias to replace Judas uh, with the group of 12 and to be an apostle, Peter said, hey, we, we should select some somebody who was a witness from Jesus' baptism to his ascension. So somebody who had followed Jesus from the time that Jesus was baptized through his ministry and through his teaching, through uh, uh, the time he died on the cross and was buried and rose from the dead to when he ascended into heaven. So that was the first standard that was highlighted in the book of Acts. Uh, Next, uh, in in the New Testament, it talks about an apostle as being a witness of of the resurrected Christ. Uh, The third standard is that they're chosen by the Lord, and then the fourth standard is that there's miraculous signs that sort of surround these apostles. And so while sometimes that title is thrown around in different uh, church backgrounds today, uh, kind of that capital A apostle is really unique to the New Testament and includes that group of 12 disciples, the 11 who were 
with Jesus the entire time. Matthias, who they, they replaced Judas with as they waited for the Holy Spirit in that upper room. And then the apostle to the Gentiles, this kind of special inclusion by God of, of Paul, who uh, saw the, the resurrected Jesus on, his, on, on the way to, uh, to persecute Christians, actually. And, and that conversation that takes place and, and the conversion that follows. And so Paul feels this unique role as apostle uh, of, of Jesus. And, and it's under the, in that capacity that he's writing this letter to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So verse 2 is really interesting as well because he's, he's laying the framework for uh, this uh, letter. And, and right away he, he kind of introduces just just in a very sort of calm way, some of the issues that Paul will be dealing with as we work our way through the letter. The first one is that lots of folks were having trouble in one way or another with Paul. And so he's sort of laying out his credentials that I really am an apostle. You ought to pay attention, you know, be devoted to the apostles' teaching, all of that. And he sort of slides his credentials in at the very introduction of the letter. And then he talks about the fact that, that the church in Corinth is a part of this way bigger team that they're a part of an ultimate team. And, and one of the issues that we're going to deal with and work our way through in, in 1 Corinthians is the Corinthian church sort of thought, well, maybe the church in Corinth is the dream team. You know, maybe, maybe we've got it really figured out. And, and Paul is just sort of laying out subtly in the introduction to his letter that, hey, you are a part of the ultimate team, but that ultimate team is way bigger than the church in Corinth. It's, it belongs to somebody else besides the church in Corinth. That the person who leads the team isn't even Apostle, capital A, Paul, but that it's Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. And so he refers to the church of God. That, that same word is used in the Old Testament to talk about God's people, this assembly of God's people. The Greek is ekklesia, which means the called out ones. It, it referred to a political gathering in, in the Greek world, but here in the New Testament, it refers to the church, that the church is called out to stand apart, to stand for, to represent God in the world around them, that the church absolutely belongs to God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ. It's an interesting phrase here in verse 2, this sanctification that, that reminds us of, of Christ's call to us and the relationship that he begins uh, with us and allows us to, to enter into a relationship with our creator God. And, and it reminds us as well of the fact that, hey, when we begin that relationship, that's not where Jesus leaves us, that Jesus wants to continue to grow us. And so, again, he's, he's subtly reminding the church in Corinth Corinth, that, man, you, you are in a great place. You have this relationship with Jesus, but you're not home yet. You know, you, you have more to learn. You have, you have more uh, distance to go. Your relationship isn't completely mature and that Jesus continues, wants to continue to grow you and change you. They're called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and and ours. You're a part of this ultimate team. 
the American Restoration Movement, of which is a historic movement from the American frontier, from which Wallula Christian Church kind of traces its heritage. And, and the American Restoration Movement was, was sort of famous for saying that we are Christians only, but we're not the only Christians. And that's really the sentiment that Paul is trying to express to the church in Corinth. Your focus has to be on Jesus. You, you want to pay attention and grow that relationship with Jesus. You are Christians only. Don't pay attention to everything that surrounds you. There are so many distractions in the world. There are so many different ways that you can get off track. You want to pay attention to your relationship with Jesus, but know that you are not the only ones with the relationship with Jesus, that you are part of this ultimate team that stretches well beyond the walls or the city of Corinth, the, the church in Corinth. You're, you're, you, you, you are brothers and sisters. You are family members. You're a part of this body that includes churches all over the world that Paul had been a part of and that, that he reminds them that Jesus is the focus of each one of those churches. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Key number one is to understand who leads the team. And just by way of this, I just go through and, and you might underline if you're, if you're using sort of the old-fashioned book Bible, right? You can underline the words. You can highlight it on that app, I suppose. You can figure out a way to do this or, or just make a, a note in your notes how many times in the first three verses that Paul mentions Jesus. You know, just over and over and over and over again, four different times in these three verses, you know, it, it makes the writing, it make, makes the sentence and, and the first couple of verses sort of clunky to read because over and over Paul points to Jesus. He wants to lay the foundation that he has, he, he, he has credentials that are worthy of being listened to, that they ought to pay attention to Paul, at, but they ought to pay attention to Paul only as, you know, the voice of God, only as he points them back to Jesus. He wants them to understand that they're a part of this ultimate team and that Jesus is the head. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the head of, of the church, capital C, universal. And certainly that makes him the leader, the head of the church in Corinth. Key number one is to understand who leads the team. Key number two is to be confident that you have all the resources that you need, to be confident that you have the resources that you need. Verse 4 says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his fun of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right, when we consider the resources that God has provided to his team and the fact that we have all the resources that we need, man, there's so much to consider as we, as we think about this second key. There's so much in these verses. I, I, it stands out to me right away that Paul begins by writing this church in Corinth. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. 
I give thanks to my God always to you. Now, this isn't so unusual in Paul's letters. He's often reminding the churches that he started and that he's been a part of that, that God is, is, you know, he's so thankful that they're a part of God's family. And so he, he gives thanks often for his brothers and sisters in the churches. And so it's not, it, it doesn't stand apart from other letters that Paul writes. It's not remarkable in that standpoint. But it's remarkable to me because Paul's writing this letter because these folks are giving him just a ton of trouble. You know, they are in a lot of different ways causing problems for Paul. They are, they are sort of assaulting whether or not Paul really has any claim to apostleship, whether they should be paying attention to him or somebody else. They're sort of running him down in, in different circles in the church. They're, they're talking about him behind their back. He, they're ignoring. You know, uh, scholars believe that this letter is written into re, in response to a letter received that we've lost, that we don't know, but that there's a, a letter sort of in between uh, uh, Paul, these visits from folks in Corinthian in Corinth and in the letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth that there's material that's been lost through the ages and so you know you know Paul is very aware that that folks are are denigrating him that folks are ignoring him that they're going their own way and it's in the midst of all of that trouble sort of these this difficult relationship that Paul says I give thanks to my God always for you uh, it's remarkable that he can stop and give thanks. You know, sometimes it's, it's easy and sometimes it's hard for us to be thankful. You know, we're, we're having our ministry team fair today, and so lots of t- folks are wearing their, their favorite, you know, college team or professional team. And, and sometimes as a fan of a sports team, it's easy to be thankful, and sometimes it's, it's hard to be thankful. This last week, over Valentine's Day, I, I read uh, you know, uh, this tweet that, that was a little poem. It said, roses are red and violets are blue. There's a team in, from Kansas in first place in the Big 12, and it's not KU. Right? That's kind of fun. As a, as a K-State fan, it was easy this week, maybe not so much yesterday, but easy this week to be thankful and sometimes it's easy, and sometimes it's not so easy. But why do, we, why do we think like that? Why do we believe that? Why do we act like that? It's because we sort of get confused about, you know, the concept of thanksgiving. Just like we get confused about love and we reduce love to sort of an emotion, quite often we reduce thanksgiving to an emotion, when things are going well, when, when my team is winning, I can be thankful. When their best player goes out with another foot injury, I'm not so thankful, right? It's an emotion that we sort of ride the ups and downs of being a fan with our, our sports teams. And so we're thankful and we struggle to offer thanksgiving. But thanksgiving is very much just like love, not an emotion, but a choice that we make. And so it's why a guy like Paul, who is being criticized by the church in Corinth, can write to them and say, I give thanks to God for each of you, even those who are criticizing me, even those who are ignoring me, even those who are making my life more difficult, I thank God for you. It's because he chooses to be thankful in that moment. He chooses to be thankful that he has a God who exercises second chances for those who are criticizing him and, the, and for himself. He's experienced that same grace. 
It's why in, in verse 4 he says, I give thanks to you, my God, always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. You know, sometimes as, as folks who, who attend church, as folks who, who study God's word, as folks who listen maybe to, to somebody preach every Sunday, and we hear that word grace, and it's a word that we're really very familiar with. And so we might rush past that word grace a little bit. That word grace is so big, though. It's so important that we ought not rush past it. We, we should definitely pay attention to it. Sometimes it's easier, I suppose, to pay attention to words that we're not familiar with. I came across a few words that have been added to the, the English dictionary in the last couple of years. Uh, the first word is phonesia. Anybody have any idea what phonesia is? It's kind of the combination of phone and amnesia. It's a word that means, you know, that, that process of forgetting who you dialed, uh, who you called right after you dialed the phone number, right? Not, maybe not so common with uh, today's cell phones, but uh, phonesia or disconfect. Disconfect is a word that we've all sort of practiced. We maybe didn't know there was a name for it, but it's the process of disinfecting a piece of food after you've dropped it on the floor by picking it up and blowing it off. Right? That's disconfect. Or how about blame storming? You know, I bet, unfortunately, that many of us have been a part of a blame storming uh, uh, time. It's a word that means a lot like brainstorming. You've, you've sat in a group and brainstormed ideas, but instead of brainstorming solutions, blamestorming is the process of being in that group and figuring out who's to blame for the problem, the reason you're in that meeting. Blamestorming. You know, there are these sort of new words that maybe we pay attention to because we're not, we don't understand exactly what they mean. We hear a word like grace, and we believe that we know exactly what it means. It's a word that we ought to concentrate on and we ought to think about and we ought to give thanks for those around because God exercises grace. Just the dictionary definition is, might sound like this, that grace means unmerited favor from God. You know, you, you've maybe heard uh, these words in, in church before that justice means getting what we deserve, deserve and mercy means not getting what we deserve and so grace means receiving what we don't deserve. This forgiveness, this mercy, this love from God, grace is so big, so big. Kyle Eidelman, who's a preacher and an author in his, birth, in his book, Grace is Greater, said this, that grace is powerful enough to cause, uh, powerful enough to erase your guilt. Grace is big enough to cover your shame. Grace is, is real enough to heal your relationships. Grace is strong enough to hold you up when you're weak. Grace is sweet enough to cure your bitterness. Grace is satisfying enough to, to deal with your disappointment. Grace is beautiful enough to redeem your brokenness. Grace explained is necessary. It's important that we take moments like this and that we explain the word grace. But grace experienced is essential. And Paul had experienced the grace of Jesus. And so it's because of his experience that he could give thanks to God for even folks who were criticizing him in the moment, even folks who were irritating him in the moment, for that same grace bestowed to each one of them, made available to each one of them. 
this grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. See, that grace is a big, big word, and so it reminds us of the forgiveness and the, the, the opportunity for us to begin a relationship with Jesus, but that grace doesn't go away after we begin a relationship with Jesus. It continues to grow in our life, and that same grace that allows a way for us to start a relationship with Jesus allows us to continue to grow. And, and here Paul uses that word to think about the gifts that were given to the church in Corinth. And he talks about how they continued to grow and, and they were more than enough, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you were not lacking in any gift. You know, a little later in the book, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when eventually this year we get to chapter 12 in another series, uh, later this year we'll, we'll talk about this list of spiritual gifts. And I don't think so much that Paul is saying here that you're not lacking any of those gifts on the list. I think he means something more than that. Because as we go through that list later in this year, we might say, well, yeah, we can see this gift really, really used in a powerful way at Wallula Christian Church. And we might get to another gift and we say, well, we don't see this gift exercised as much at, at Wallula Christian Church. And so when, when we get to that list and we might... Uh, take one uh, spiritual gift out and say, we don't see that exercise. And we might add another spiritual gift in and we see, man, this church really excels with this spiritual gift. And we look at that list and we, the idea of completeness here, that we're not lacking anything, isn't so much that we check off everything on the list, but that everything on the list points to the leader of the team, that everything on the list points back to our relationship with Jesus, that when we have that relationship with Jesus, when we rely solely on that relationship with Jesus, that we are never, as a team, as his family, as his body, lacking anything. And that's Paul's uh, point here. That's what he's trying to communicate to the church in Corinth, that you have all the resources that you need, that because of this relationship with Jesus, because of his grace and how big that grace is, you have everything you need as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he kind of bring, comes full circle. And all of those gifts, all of that grace, is so that we can wait for the revealing of the Lord. He's talking about Jesus' second coming. That word wait is a weird one, isn't it? Because we tend to think about waiting in line or waiting at the bus stop or waiting for you know, our, our kids to get out of school or waiting for the next uh, you know, the, for the work day to begin. We think about waiting as this, as this process of kind of doing nothing. In the New Testament, uh, you know, this, this, the Greek here should, uh, the best translation would probably be that you eagerly wait, that you wait with this forward thinking. It reminds me, uh, as, as a kid, you know, I, I've told this story before, but as a kid, my folks have this long driveway. They live out in the country and they have this long driveway. And, and as a kid, you know, sometimes my mom and dad would leave and they'd leave my brothers at home and they'd say, hey, we, before we get back, we want you to have A, B, and C done. You know, whatever those chores might have been. And as a kid, I remember waiting to kind of begin the process of doing those chores. And sometimes we'd wait 
until we could hear or see our folks at the end of the driveway and then see how fast we could go about making it at least look like that we've done A, B, and C, the things they left us to do while they were gone. Now that, that's sort of how we think about waiting most of the time. I don't know as if I would describe that as eagerly waiting for the return of my parents. Right? And Jesus has given us this grace, this big grace, this big love, and these, all the resources that we need so that we can eagerly await for his return, so that we can be about his business in this world. And he'll sustain us to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, because God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We have all the resources we need to begin and to grow and to extend that relationship with Jesus to others around us as his grace overflows from our life to others. Second key, key number two is to be confident that you have all the resources that you need. Key number three is that everybody needs to run the same play. That everybody, as part of the ultimate team, any team that's successful is a team that is on the same page, that runs the same play at the same time. Right, Paul says in verse 10 here of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, the same judgment. So Paul, again, he makes this appeal, and this word appeal is an interesting one in verse 10, because it, it's a word that falls just short of I command you. Right? It's just short of that idea that these are my instructions and you better follow them or else. Remember, Paul has already sort of subtly laid that groundwork, that foundation, that, hey, I, I have the credentials necessary that you ought to listen to me, that I have the authority necessary in the church for you to follow these directions. But he knows there's some issues out there, and so he uses just a slightly less direct word. But when he says, I appeal to you, he appeals to them in the name of our Lord Jesus. He kind of steps, takes a step back on his own authority, and he points instead to the authority of Jesus. Look, I'm, I'm asking you, I'm asking you in this direct way that you pay attention to this stuff. But remember, it's not just me, it's Jesus asking you to do this. Have you ever heard two siblings argue? I know in your family this never happens. In my family this happens once in a while. My two daughters especially will sort of snicker back and forth, bicker back and forth with each other in, in arguments. And, and occasionally, even today, this happened much more when they were young, but even today, occasionally, that argument will get to a point where one of them says, well, it doesn't matter because mom said... Right? I, I can't convince you. I can't make an argument that's profound enough, that's deep enough, that's meaningful enough for you to give me my way. And so I will, I will point back to this ultimate authority, Mom said. And that's kind of what, Jesus, uh, what Paul is doing here. He's saying, look, I get that you disagree with me. I get that you have issues with who I am and my place in the church, but this isn't really me. 
This is Jesus who's saying to you, agree with one another. Say the same thing. That's what that word literally means. Run the same play. In the community, be saying the same thing. That there be no divisions among you. This isn't so much, it's interesting because scholars will talk about these, these different schisms, these different groups, these divisions that exist in the, the church in Corinth. And that's one of the reasons that Paul writes this letter, except outside of about chapter 1, these divisions aren't spoke of again. This word literally means to tear apart. It's bickering. It's arguing. It's complaining. And that arguing and complaining centered around leadership in the church, but I don't know as if different groups or factions of people had actually formed. But that disagreement, that tearing, was enough that, that it was a real issue in the church. So there shouldn't be any divisions, there should be no bickering or arguing among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That word united is a word that's, that's used uh, just really one other place that I know of in the New Testament in, in, in Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, when it's talking about uh, chapter 1, verse 19, it's talking about binding fishing nets, sewing them back together. You know, I've never, I've never mended a fishing net before, but I've relaced lots of baseball gloves. And what I can tell you about relacing a baseball glove is that if you don't relace a baseball glove, if that baseball glove tears, if that lacing tears in the glove, then you, your glove is not very useful. You're not going to be a benefit to the team, and what's more, you're sort of endangering yourself because the ball goes straight through that thing. It needs to be mended together. It needs to be tied up. It's got to be relaced. We're to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Paul has heard, which means the reputation of the church had gotten to a point where these divisions, these arguments, were evident to folks that were passing through. This probably wasn't a member of the church in Corinth, but was probably one of those folks who was passing tr through Corinth on whatever kind of business they had, and they, they you know, maybe visited, they had a, shared a meal at the church. It was evident to them that there was this issue with leadership, that there was this, this quarreling that was happening, and that was their reputation. You know, it had to break Paul's heart. Because there can be all sorts of good things that happen in church, and there can be all sorts of bad things that happen in church, but when churches divide, when churches split, when churches fight with one another, it's, it's maybe the most devastating thing to those who love the church. It's got to be so disheartening for a guy like Paul and for Jesus. It's, after all, the exact opposite of what Jesus said. And in John chapter 13, verse 35, he said, they will know that you're my disciples. How? By the way you love one another. Not by the way you treat the world around you, but by the way you love one another. And so when churches divide, when churches fight, when churches quarrel among themselves, and that's the most devastating thing that can happen. Uh, churches can't be on mission when they're divided. 
Paul says, you, you need to be of one mind, one body. What I mean, he says, is that e- each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? This is sort of interesting. We don't have a lot of time to, to walk through each one of these groups, and we're not really super sure exactly what they were arguing about here. But it, one thing is clear, that they're... they're uh, Attention was divided from focus only on Jesus to others. Paul goes on to say, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that, I, uh, that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not the word, uh, words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What Paul isn't saying is that, hey, I don't think baptism is important. After all, he says, well, I didn't baptize very many of you, and then he makes this sort of long list of folks that he had baptized, right? Paul practiced baptism. That was important to him. It's the way in the New Testament that we say yes to Jesus. So Paul's not saying, hey, don't worry about baptism. What he is saying is is that even in baptism, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that act of baptism is meaningless if you're not paying attention to Jesus who calls you to baptism. If you're not paying attention to Jesus who calls you into relationship with him, if you're focused on on something I said, if you're focused on how well Apollos said it, if you're worried about who gets credit, then you're not keeping the main thing the main thing. Paul said, I've got one mission, and that's to share Jesus. And I will share Jesus, crucified and raised from the dead, no matter what anybody thinks about it. It's so awesome. We're going to talk more about that uh, next week. Uh, The third key, key number three, is that everybody runs the same play at the same time. Everybody points to Jesus. You know, when we do that, you know, we can really, we can be that ultimate team. Take a look at this, uh, this clip from the movie Hoosiers.
Hickory wins, right? Well, when we, uh, when we know who, who leads the team that we're a part of, and when we understand that he provides all the resources that we need, when we know and remember and, 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 and live in the fact that his grace is big enough, and we move in the same direction, uh, keeping the main thing the main thing, we can be a part of his ultimate team. Let's stand and worship him right now.